0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Wow now, tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tu sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy A.I. on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. The city of Ravenna may not be the most famous of Italian cities, but it's one with a long and fascinating history. Once the seat of power of the Western Roman Empire, Ravenna became a pivotal meeting point between East and West, ruled variously by Ostrogoths, Byzantines and Lombards, and today it remains a focal point of early Christian art. For this podcast, we spoke to Professor Judith Heron, the author of Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe a Wolfson History Prize-nominated book about the city's storied past. Putting the questions to Judith was Kev Lotchen, section editor of History Extra and deputy editor of BBC History Revealed.
2: Today I'm joined by Judith Heron, who is Professor Emerita and Constantine Leventis, Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Classics at King's College London, and we're talking about um, her book Ravenna, Capital of Empire and Crucible of Europe. Judith, thank you for joining me once again on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, it, it's a fascinating book, which is not just the history of a city, but the kind of meeting of east and west through the lens of that city. And there's so many characters and interesting things in it, we're not going to have time to cover them all. But I think we should start probably with a backgrounding question, which is where is Ravenna and what period of history are we talking about here? So it's a small
1: city on the northeast coast of Italy. And it was a Roman city with all the Roman features, built on a grid plan. Its most important asset is an enormous port. It was connected to the port at Classis, which is simply called Port, which was the base for the East Mediterranean section of the Roman Navy, set up by Julius Caesar himself. So it was a very, very important uh, communications area, and it was the only deep water port safe for the Navy, north of Ancona. I'm talking about the period between about 400 and 800 AD, when there was no Venice. It's very, very important to remember that although there were cities around the north of the Adriatic, Prado, Aquileia, very important bases, there was no major port and there was no city called Venice. There was a province called the Venetie, which is different. So it's difficult to imagine because, of course, if you think of northeast Italy, that's what you think of. But this Ravenna was the great port and the communication centre for all naval and a lot of overland um, uh, and riverine communication because it's in the estuary of the River Po and the River Po flows from the coast of Italy up to Milan and of course, at Milan, you're very close to the Alps and then just over the Alps to Transalpine Europe.
2: Could you give us a bit of sense about what is so captivating about the city itself? I mean, you write very eloquently in your introduction that Ravenna is a place you visited yourself and were captivated by many years ago. Um, I know this is a podcast, but could you give us a bit of a sense of what it's like?
1: The key element that is so fascinating, I think, is that there are about a dozen major buildings that are all very close together in what was a good Roman city, but is now a very, very small walled area. it's, Its ancient walls are still standing to a very limited height. But the wonderful thing is that you can walk around from one to another, and you see these amazing churches covered in mosaic, with sculptures outside, with beautiful areas where there must have been palazzi and and other secular buildings that have not survived, but we know they were there and some of the floor mosaics have been saved and are now on display. So you get a sense of a whole culture that is very much um, pressed into a small area and even in one day, you can run from one building to the other and admire all these truly amazing early Christian monuments. They are so spectacular. And one of the reasons why they have been, uh, um, they continue to be spectacular, is that Ravenna really slipped out of historical importance. Um, by the year 1000, it was It was revisited by Ottonian emperors from Germany and a few, very, very few pilgrims and merchants, but it wasn't the great center it had been. And in that period of relative neglect, it continued to be a very important local city, local market and so on, but it didn't attract developers. And this was the saving of the early Christian uh, mosaics, which adorn it
2: you mentioned it starting as a roman city there so maybe we should start at that point as well um, when and how does ravenna start moving towards prominence insofar as the roman emperors are concerned
1: in the year 402 the emperor honorius who was based in milan Was terrified by the arrival of the Goths, their threat to the city, and he was advised to move away from Milan, his capital, because it was such a large city with such an enormously long circuit of walls, he hadn't got the forces to defend it. And at that point, Ravenna was suggested because it was more compact and smaller, and because it was situated in the very marshy, dangerous estuaries of the River Po, full of lakes and swampy areas, very difficult of access, and therefore easy to defend. And so in the year 402, he decided to go. And we know that the mint was set up before the end of the year, and he was minting coins in his own name uh, from that date. And it, it therefore became the capital, the capital of the Roman Empire in the West. Rome hadn't been the capital for a long time. But Ravenna was now elevated to a very, very supremely important uh, city. And with that status, the the local bishop gained a fantastic new status. All the administration and the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire moved to Ravenna and new buildings were built and lots of palazzi and, and villas and accommodation for all the people who followed the court. So it became a very, very important city after 402 and it remained important right through till 751 when it fell to the Lombards.
2: It's a really interesting uh, point to clarify that as well because even though Rome is in like, the capital of the Roman Empire, it wasn't always right at the end. And once Honorius is there, it's not just Honorius, an emperor in exile. He is a fully fledged emperor in a capital that he's making.
1: Yes. And he's making it his capital and he wants to build the most grand buildings and the most beautiful buildings to enhance its status. And there's a certain rivalry with Rome because the Bishop of Rome, of course, considers himself the heir of St. Peter and therefore the most important leader in Western Christendom. But the Bishop of Ravenna has suddenly become the Bishop of the capital city of the Roman Empire in the West. And he's got to have the same status. He's got to be as grand, as rich, as distinguished, as important. And Honorius says, yes, we have to increase your status and we will build a magnificent new cathedral. And I will endow the church with fine decorations and a lot of wealth and lands and money. But the Bishop of Rome. Is exceptional, and you have to go to the Bishop of Rome to get yourself inaugurated to be consecrated, and the Bishop of Ravenna was very unhappy about that. But that, nonetheless, that's what happened, and so there was the city became the capital, and everybody had to go to Ravenna in order to intercede with the emperor in order to get what they wanted, to present their um, their petitions, to get replies to have new laws made. All the very important matters of state were decided in Ravenna, except when the emperor wanted to visit Rome. And indeed, Honorius did visit Rome a lot because he wanted to reassure the senators who remained in Rome and were organizing the local city civic functions and provisions of the water and so on. He wanted to reassure them that he still respected Rome, although he didn't actually want to live there.
2: And of course, as the years pass, we get to what could be described as the declining period of Rome, where there are a number of sackings of the Eternal City. But at that point, I know from my reading of it, it seems Ravenna only seems to rise during that time. So, I mean, to what extent do the attacks on Rome influence Ravenna's own development?
1: Well, I don't think Ravenna saw it as a a as a, a, a way of enhancing its own position because, of course, the sack of Rome was a very, very shocking business. In 410, the Goths entered the city and for three days they ransacked it. Now, it's it is said that they respected the churches and it is said that they didn't cause as much damage as the vandals did when they sacked Rome in 455 but you can imagine that by then the city was much diminished and it was enormous. Of course, it had been such a huge metropolis and its walls were so extensive. There were, ne- there were never enough men to defend the walls. It was always uh, a, a, when the city was under siege, it was in danger. So Rome did indeed decline. And as the civic functions of Rome were stripped away and Petered out into nothingness, the Bishop of Rome rose in importance as the spiritual leader of the Christian community. So there was a balance and a change going on in Rome. And I think Ravenna watched, or the people in Ravenna, the Emperor in Ravenna watched, sometimes in horror, sometimes in amazement, but always with respect for the history of Rome and the history of incorporated, uh, all the things that were Roman about the empire in the West.
2: It's interesting as well you mentioned the vandals there because, of course, they were so uh, destructive that they gave rise to the term vandalism.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, it's not coined, actually, until the 18th century in, in, in French, but nonetheless, they gave their name to what we call vandalism. And uh, actually, they probably weren't such a um, uh, uh, so very violent. But when they got to Rome, uh, they decided that this was a good opportunity to sack the city again and carry off all sorts of things that they considered very important, not just statues and, and uh, building material, uh, but gold and silver that they collected from uh, from households, from treasuries, from churches, wherever they could find it.
2: Um, one man who looms large over the history of Venner, at least from my interpretation of your book, was the Ostrogoth king, Theodoric, who reigns for some 33 years, I think it is. How important is his story to the development of the city? I think it's crucial
1: because Theodoric had been a hostage, had been taken hostage as a boy and sent to Constantinople, where he spent a whole decade from about the age of eight. Critical formative years for him on sufferance in the court in Constantinople, watching the emperor and empress as they not just performed rituals and duties and processions and things like that, but also how they ruled, how they actually administered the empire, how they made decisions. And although he was not, uh, uh, he had to be very well treated and he appears to have been well educated in Latin and Greek, Theodoric was an Aryan Christian that's to say he wasn't he was considered a heretic by the Orthodox Christians so his period as a hostage was a two-sided thing it gave him a great sense of how to be a good emperor how to be a good ruler how to win battles how to um, master the arts of governing laws money how to get in the taxes all those aspects of administration. And at the same time, it made him very conscious of his Gothic identity as an outsider. So when he brought these features to Ravenna, I think his buildings show us that he wanted to create a beautiful city like Constantinople in the West, where he would be the ruler as king um, under the authority of the emperor in Constantinople. But he would bring to Ravenna all the skills that he'd observed and learnt and mastered in Constantinople. So it was a very direct input of Eastern imperial traditions, which undoubtedly made the city very much stronger and gave Theodoric a very, very important status in the West.
2: Yeah, definitely going to come back onto that point. Um, one thing I kind of took away. I felt like there was something of a rehabilitation for, I suppose, the term barbarians here. And uh, from that Roman perspective, um, it it seems to be quite paganistic. But you make the point that actually the Goths, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, they're all Christians. What is the difference then between Catholicism and Arian Christianity?
1: There are quite a lot of complicated theological problems. The key thing... Remember, is that when the Goths went to Constantinople, their representative went as an ambassador and returned later saying, The Gothic people want to adopt Christianity. We wish to be instructed. We wish to learn and follow the Christ, the one God. So they were leaving behind all their pagan gods and goddesses and the mountains and the rivers and things that they normally worshipped. But when they got to Constantinople, it was the Arian definition of of Christianity that was in favor. That is to say the emperors in Constantinople were all Arian, followers of Arius. And Arius was a, a deacon whose main arguments were that there is a sort of ridiculous connection between the three aspects of the one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit how can they all be equal if God is the Father and Christ is the Son? The natural thing is that the Son is younger than the Father, is is, is the child of the Father, and they can't be equal. And this, of course, was against the Trinitarian principle that the Godhead was three elements of equal, original origin of the same nature, of the same power, of the same essence. And Arius said, this can't be the case. The God has to create the son and he creates the Holy Spirit to bring the Godhead to Mary, the mother of Christ. And she is therefore imbued with the Godhead by the Holy Ghost, by the the dove, the spirit. And she then gives birth to Christ Christ. And this shows that this is a family relationship in which God is the Father and Christ is the Son. So there's a, a relationship of senior and junior within the Trinity. And this was anathema to the Orthodox Christians. Of course, they both parties called themselves Orthodox. They both considered themselves Catholic, the proper, true, correct Christians. But essentially, the Aryan Christians were were replaced by orthodox uh, leaders and emperors, followed that orthodox position by the fifth century. So when Theodoric came to the west, he and the Goths were all following uh, Arians, uh, Arius's definitions of Christianity, which had been condemned at several councils as heretical, as incorrect.
2: And, you know, we've talked uh, very briefly earlier that Ravenna is a, is a centre for early Christian art and I think is it seven or eight UNESCO World Heritage sites there. Um, how, presumably do, there are Catholics and Aryan Christians existing side by side for at least part of Ravenna's history. So how does the relationship there influence the kind of the development of these uh, places of worship and these mosaics?
1: This is a very crucial thing because Theodoric arrived with his Goths and they were a minority. Within the local population, both on in terms of their identity as people who spoke Gothic. I mean, they spoke Latin, and some of them undoubtedly spoke Greek as well. But they were identified as Goths by their, by their the way they wore their hair, the way they wore their clothes, all their customs and habits. And of course, they were also Aryan Christians rather than Catholic Christians. And this meant that Theodoric had to. Organize and insist upon a degree of cooperation and coexistence between the two definitions of Christianity. And instead of taking over churches that had belonged to the had been built by the Orthodox, he built separate churches for the Aryans and he built separate palaces for the Arian bishops and he decorated these churches in, in a very spectacular way. He took over the imperial palace. He wasn't going to be deprived of that particular um, Monument. But basically, he provided alternate places of worship for the Goths where they had their own Aryan priests and their own liturgy, which they celebrated in Gothic. They sang the hymns in Gothic. So we know that there were separate, they were separate, they were a separate Christian community, but the other Christians, the ones that were local, were Catholic. Just carried on as before, and we see their bishops building churches, founding new institutions, and they're building grander and grander churches. So there's a sort of competition between Theodoric and his bishop and the Catholic bishops, and they all want to make more impressive buildings which is, creates a very wonderful um, situation for craftsmen, because the modests are very much in demand, and the people who can sculpt uh, and make beautiful capitals, and those who use stucco, and that some of the carved stucco is absolutely magnificent. So there are lots and lots of jobs for those craftsmen who are capable of decorating these churches and constructing them in the first place, because they're very, very large, very impressive.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: The old city, the ancient capital of Rome, was part of the Exarchate, but the Exarch lived in Ravenna, in the palace which had been created and expanded by the emperors like Honorius and then by the Gothic, Ostrogothic kings like Theodoric. So it became a very important center for Byzantine influence in Europe. Hola!
2: This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500E is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500E at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Uh, that building of well, separate um, monuments and places of worship, that becomes quite significant later on, doesn't it, once the Byzantines regain control of Ravenna,
1: It does, because the, the, the Byzantine emperor Justinian um, decrees that the Aryan Christians may not write wills, and therefore, because they're heretics, they may not pass on their property to their children and the rest of their families. And this is a way of actually persuading them that they have to give up Aryan Christianity because obviously if they can't all their all the wealth and all the glory that they've accumulated, if they can't pass it on to their descendants, um, that makes their lives very difficult. And it, essentially the churches that had been belonged that had belonged to the Aryans, and there are many of them, were summarily taken away from those communities and given to the Orthodox, the Catholic Christians. And that was a form of appropriation which was decreed by the emperor in Constantinople and they couldn't do anything about it. And gradually, therefore, the observance of Aryan Christianity began to wane. But I think we have to remember that because Theodoric had made these provisions which were based on a certain degree of toleration, there was a practice and a tradition that was built into the situation in Ravenna, which was quite different, or perhaps just better organized than in other cities, where frequently heretics and particularly Jews were singled out for persecution. And the tradition that Theodoric built and which continued in the city get, meant that Ravenna was a very much more multicultural, respectful of other traditions. Um, imposing a sort of not necessarily peaceful coexistence but at least according um, respect to other faiths and that singled it out as a very important uh, exception to the general rule and this was much cited during the Protestant Reformation when the Puritans and the Protestants said you see these there have been periods in history when toleration has been has prevailed and we think that that is the way for us to coexist with our Catholic neighbours and not to fight over it not to fight over our religious differences. That was a very significant uh, principle that had developed in Ravenna.
2: Yeah it's really fascinating and I don't like to use the term melting pot likely, but kind of in the sense I got that Ravenna ends up being a sort of bridge between old imperial Rome um, and Constantinople in the east. And, you know, it ties into, I think, to this, um, the subtitle you've given your book, the Crucible of Europe. Um, is, is that kind of a fair comment to make?
1: Absolutely. I think the fact that it was centered right in the middle of the Mediterranean, that it had this port that had access to the East Mediterranean and over the up through the Po Valley to transalpine Europe, it really was a pivot between the East and the West. And because Constantinople sent its governors to rule the city and the area around Ravenna for some 200 years from the middle of the sixth to the middle of the eighth century it was an outpost of imperial traditions in at a time when imperial traditions had long faded from most areas of the west and therefore it sustained traditions that were um un, becoming unfamiliar elsewhere it's, it's a very significant role
2: yeah it's an interesting dual relationship as well I think this is something else you pick up on that, at the same time that uh Constantinople capital of Byzantine empire and east is acting as this kind of bulwark against Islamic expansion it's also kind of a simulacrum promoting its own culture into this pocket of Europe well, I suppose proto-Europe at that point
1: it, it's not until the very late 8th century that one of Charlemagne's advisors Alcuin starts saying yes he's the father of Europe uh and my point is that actually, what had happened in Ravenna was very much the prototype of European cities, which did depend on the collection of information from all sources, bringing together many different traditions and insisting on their coexistence and a positive uh, correlation to form multi, not just many cultured, but uh, with an openness to other traditions with an openness to new ideas that was lacking at the time. And that's that's why Ravenna, I called it the crucible crucible of Europe, just a crucible, because it manifested so many of these very important features, which we now identify um, as as specifically European.
2: What do you see as the most crucial of those? I think the
1: toleration is one of the key things and it may be in rather short supply in some quarters today but let's hope that Europe does stand for it and does believe it and thinks very uh, most importantly that we have to keep our, our we have to remain open to new traditions and not dismiss novelty simply because we don't understand it there are there are very important things to be learned which Ravenna manifests in its, its survival and its development uh, in, the, in the period when things in the western half of what had been the Roman Empire are not, in, not going well and there is very little, there's not so much creative
2: thinking and creative work being done. We've uh, touched on the Byzantine Empire a couple of times now. I just wanted you to jump back and just talk about them a bit. Um, what, what causes the Byzantines to take control of Ravenna once again? Because by that time, Theodoric and his successors have been ruling for several decades. So I guess there's three questions of one here, like what leads to that reconquest? And then that does lead to what we know as the Exarchate of Ravenna, which I don't think is a very familiar term. So what is an Exarchate? And how does that change, Ravenna?
1: I think the key to this is that that the Emperor Justinian realised that the provinces of Africa and Italy, which were under non-Roman control, let's not say barbarian, but the Vandals had conquered North Africa and the Goths were ruling in Italy. And in the 530s, he decided that it would be um, possible to send an expeditionary force to regain control, partly because these were very rich provinces. Africa particularly provided an enormous quantity of of wheat to feed the population of Rome, wine, oil, all the basics of life. And North Africa was very well irrigated by the Romans. So it was very much more productive than it looks to be today. And we see these fantastic mosaics in Tunis and places which show how rich and wealthy the population was. And Belisarius was absolutely brilliant, and he managed to capture the Vandal king and take him back to Constantinople as a prisoner, honoured prisoner, where he was uh, suitably retired into the country villa and given uh, a pension. And then Justinian said, well, you know, why don't you go back and see what you can do in Italy? It wasn't a large expeditionary force, but Belisarius was again very successful in reconquering Sicily. And from Sicily, he started up the, uh, the, the leg of Italy. And the problem was that he met a great deal uh, of resistance from the Goths, and they were much better or, or organized militarily, and they were also uh, hostile to the notion that uh, Constantinople wished to take away their, their, their land, conquer them. So there was a good deal of resistance, and it took a lot longer for Belisarius to get to Ravenna. But in 540, he made a negotiation, which does appear to have been somewhat tricky, not clear exactly what the terms were, and the Roman army marched into the city of Ravenna, and the Goths never regained control. They went on fighting for a long time, but they never regained control. So from 540, Constantinople had a direct governing position in uh, Ravenna, which was its base, its capital in the Italian peninsula and from then on it sent officials, governors who were called exarchs, that was just the title they were given, and they had been sent to North Africa after the conquest of North Africa. So in Carthage and in Ravenna, the two major capitals, an exarch governed in the name of the emperor, and these were officials, usually military officials, who came with a great deal of prestige and money and authority. And they had so much power that temptation to set themselves up as independent rulers was often um, too great. So there were a lot of rebellions, but nonetheless, Constantinople effectively had control over the provinces of Africa and Italy for quite some time. And the exarchate of Italy was the one that survived longest and was perhaps most significant because it had, uh, it it controlled the cities that were full of uh, Roman connections, Roman, uh, uh, well, Rome was in the exarchate, the old city, the ancient capital of Rome was part of the exarchate, but the exarch lived in Ravenna, in the palace, which had been created and expanded by The emperors like Hodorius, and then by the Gothic, Ostrogothic kings like Theodoric. So it became a very important center for Byzantine influence in Europe. All the communications from Constantinople passed through Ravenna. uh, And because it had access to Transalpine Europe, that was one way that merchants and military men and ambassadors and gifts of gold that were made to the Franks and the Merovingian rulers and Burgundians, all sorts of treaties that were negotiated involved the payment of gold. And you can imagine, you can't just send a chest of gold without an armed guard, because as soon as that somebody knows what's in it, they'll want to steal it, so on and so on. So certainly Ravenna became a conduit. For a lot of communication between East and West. And the Exarchate was a, a, a it was a, 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 a it was an object of every non-Roman ruler's ambition to capture it. <laughs> so uh, there were lots of attacks, but it resisted until 751. And then finally it was captured by, by the Lombards, a different uh, non-Roman people but they'd been settled in in northwest Italy for a long time and finally they got to the doors of Ravenna and broke them down.
2: You mentioned the Lombards how does that period of history tie into the emergence of the papal states and the papacy's influence over Ravenna and the area around it versus the Byzantine empires?
1: But this is a long process because the Lombards uh, first entered Italy in the 570s. So in the late 6th century, they were already established around Milan and in Liguria, which is north of Genoa. So on the northwest coast. And of course, Italy is divided by the Apennines, great mountain range, which effectively separates Rome from Ravenna and the Lombards from the Exarchate. But over the centuries, they were constantly anxious to extend the kingdom of the the Lombards. uh, And their their base, their capital city in Pavia, which had some very spectacular buildings, um, was a a rival to Ravenna. They just wished to get rid of the Byzantine governor in in Ravenna completely. And they were very successful uh, in the early 8th century. And the city does appear to have been not well defended by the exarchs one exarch is known to have fled to the venetia in the north where he was in exile for a year and then they brought him back all sorts of of comings and goings that meant that it wasn't as well governed as it should have been and in the event um it was finally king aistolf who managed to conquer to to capture the city um and he Uh, Exulted in the fact that he'd become the king he'd just taken over Ravenna and for another uh, 30 odd years nearly 20 uh, nearly, nearly 30 years the Lombards did control the city nominally that is to say the bishop took over the position of the exarch and the bishop asserted his control over the, not just over the church, but over the area around the city. And of course, the Church of Ravenna was uh, very well endowed with territory, estates and lands and produce that was derived from those lands, which meant that it it was able to pay its clergy much higher salaries than most churchmen ever got. And of course, the bishop gave himself grander and grander costumes and Uh, built more and more beautiful churches there was a a great sense of uh, achievement uh, as the bishop took over from the exarch but it was the end of control from Constantinople and the Lombards were um, but only, only, only successful for a few decades because this is the point at which the papacy the pope in Rome the bishop of Rome realizes that the Lombards are indeed coming for Rome and he's not going to be able to defend it. He doesn't have a military force. He has a great spiritual power, but he doesn't have a military force and even his officers can't can't hold off the Lombards. And at the point where he makes an appeal to the king of the Franks to come and rescue him to defend Rome, Uh, that that makes a complete change in the way the the West conceived its own uh, identity, its own power, and drew on the uh, extraordinary military achievements of the Franks to make sure that the Lombards did not capture Rome. And so that was a reconfiguration of power in the the West, and then connection and the very strong alliance between Rome and the Franks north of the Alps, way north of the Alps, because of course Charlemagne was building his new capital at Aachen, which is just on the borders of, of, today, of Belgium and France today. So um, this was a very important new axis of power and it effectively left Ravenna out.
2: It's interesting there that that new axis of power it also excludes Constantinople as well. So suddenly Ravenna is maybe on the outside, but it's definitely more in the Western quarter. Um, but also you mentioned Charlemagne and his new palace at Aachen. And as I understand that he based that on the architecture of Ravenna, not Rome, even though Rome is where he get, is coronated. And I think um, you're right, he uses building materials taken from Ravenna to make that um, palace. Uh, What's the significance of that, of choosing Ravenna over Rome?
1: Well, I think he wanted building materials that he could not find north of the Alps. And one of the reasons for that was that columns that supported um, stone buildings were no longer being cut in the marble quarries. And you needed old columns, good, strong old Roman columns, wherever you could find them. And indeed, he applied to the Bishop of Rome, as well as the Bishop of Ravenna, for permission to take building materials, specifically columns and capitals, and then marble fragments that he could use to decorate the interior of his buildings. So we know that it wasn't just Ravenna. Rome also gave up some of its old building material. But it's interesting to me that he went three times to Ravenna. And although he didn't stay very long, I'm quite, quite sure he was taken by the bishop of Ravenna to see the churches. And he must have seen the portrayal of Justinian in the mosaic in San Vitale. And it is the case that the octagonal church, which was his palace church at Aachen, is an octagon. And it's modeled on the plan of San Vitale. I mean, he may have seen other octagonal churches, but nothing like that had ever been built north of the Alps. So it was a very technical achievement for his architects. And I do wonder whether he may have taken skilled craftsmen from Ravenna to assist in the building when he took off all those building materials. And, of course, he took the great equestrian statue that Theodoric had put up in front of his palace, and he had that transported over the Alps and set it up in front of Charles's new palace in Aachen. So he really wanted to recreate the sense of grandeur that he associated with Roman traditions in Ravenna. And that's uh, that is, and we know that the stat that statue arrived and was put up uh, because there's a poem about it. So he, he felt he thought nothing of taking all these, taking all these heavy. Uh, l- monumental pieces of, of of architecture north to re- reassemble them in Aachen.
2: Yeah, that's quite an undertaking. Um, can we draw any conclusions about whether that's an aesthetic imitation, or does it say anything about how he wanted to be perceived or intended to be a ruler?
1: I'm quite sure that if you were if you were being crowned emperor of the Romans, you have a title to live up to. Now, whether Charlemagne, whether Charles, King of the Franks, King of the Lombards, really thought that this was a good idea, or it was sprung upon him by Pope Leo III, is a matter for um, historians to argue over. But undoubtedly, once he got that new title, Emperor of the Romans, he must have considered, what does it mean to be emperor of the Romans? It means you've got to rule like a Roman emperor, And you do things in the way the Romans did, if those were good, uh, efficient ways of ruling. And so the determination to impose a more uniform system of government to impose a better standard of Latin, to reform the liturgy so that all bishops celebrated, all priests celebrated in the same way and understood the terms of their faith in the correct way. All these things became more important uh, to Charlemagne after his coronation, or were perhaps they didn't become necessarily more important. They just became, they were more ingrained and he followed them through very closely. We know that he was very concerned about correct theology. He was very critical of Constantinople in that respect. And I think he was also very intent on reforming bad practice and malpractice in government. And so he appointed skilled administrators, men with proven uh, attention to detail who could understand what he wanted and make sure it happened. Um, it, It was a very great achievement. And his sons threw it away when they divided his kingdom into three between the three of them. And, uh, uh, well, they didn't throw it away, but they were unable to live up to his traditions.
2: To draw this somewhere towards a conclusion, um, it's something I would say, and actually I, you alluded to it at the beginning, is when you think of great um, Italian cities, like it, you think Venice and you might think Milan and Florence, but I, I sometimes wonder Ravenna doesn't, get into the same breath and you know a couple of things you noted in the book like Ravenna was never its own agent and rarely made history in obvious shaping fashion. How important is that to its legacy and how we perceive it today?
1: I think we go to Italy because we know about the Italian Renaissance and we think of Italy and Italian art as being rediscovered in the 15th century and redeveloped in all its glorious forms, which was so influential uh, thereafter. So we don't think so much about uh, the early Christian period when there was indeed an incredible flourishing of artistic endeavor and achievement in architecture and sculpture and this mosaic decoration. But there isn't any fresco painting of great importance in Ravenna the Renaissance was not, it did not mark Ravenna in the same way. So inevitably people go to Venice where Renaissance art is very, very beautifully displayed in numerous buildings and churches that were wonderfully decorated uh, by famous artists. And Ravenna did not have famous artists and it did not have a Renaissance that's comparable. And therefore it always remained a backwater And that may have indeed preserved these early Christian buildings from being modernized, from being rebuilt. We know that the great cathedral um, constructed in the early fifth century was indeed torn down and rebuilt in Baroque style um, to please the local bishop who wanted a grander church, a better church. So there were modifications that, uh, of course, changed the style of architecture, but some of most of the old decorated early Christian buildings were allowed to remain. And that's why we see such a, an enormous treasure, a great jewelry of, of, of beautiful, beautiful achievements in Ravenna today.
2: And uh, finally, I mean, this has been a, a, a whistle-salt tour through a very complex subject. Um, what would you like readers to take away from this book?
1: I hope that they want to go to Ravenna. I hope they would actually go and look at the buildings. I hope they would then think, yes, perhaps this is quite an interesting city. And how wonderful that it inspired so many people who subsequently visited it. It is like a prototype of a European city.
0: That was Judith Herrin. Her book, Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe was published by Alan Lane earlier in 2021 and is shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, the winner of which will be announced this Wednesday, 9th of June. We'll be bringing you a podcast with some of the other shortlisted authors later this week, so keep an eye out for that. You can also hear more of Judith's thoughts on the Byzantine Empire in one of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts. To find that, just visit historyextra.com forward slash byzantine hyphen podcast thanks for listening this podcast was produced by ben Hewitt, jack bateman and Brittany colley tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the history of british prisons